Hello, and welcome to the Work Well podcast. The World Health Organization has identified the workplace as a priority area for health promotion. Why then does the word work have such a negative and unhealthy connotation for so many people? Think about it. We spend so much of our adult lives at work. Why should it be in a role or in an environment that doesn't support our health and well-being? My name is Brian Crook, and I'm on a mission to make workplaces more positive places to be and to make our working day as healthy and productive as possible. Join me on the Work Well podcast as I interview workplace well-being thought leaders and industry professionals to discuss how employers, employees, and entrepreneurs can lead the way by creating and sustaining the healthy, safe, and well workplaces of the future. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Kelly Metcalf. Kelly is the head of diversity, inclusion, and well-being for Fujitsu Europe. As you'll hear in our conversation, Kelly is passionate about creating a culture where everyone can be completely themselves at work. And culture is, is really key for Kelly. The initiatives, the one-off events, the workshops, as you'll hear, I mean, they all have a role, but Kelly is really interested in creating a foundational culture of health at Fujitsu. And she does this through a supportive work environment and positive nudges that promote healthy behaviors. She's also an advocate for the links between employee well-being and inclusion. And it's a question that comes up quite often. So it was interesting to hear Kelly's perspective on how one supports the other. Sit back and enjoy my conversation with Kelly Metcalf. Kelly, hello and welcome to the Work Well podcast. Hi, Brian. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for joining us. So tell us a little bit, how are you and how's life? How's work for you at the moment? Yeah, I'm well, I'm very good. Thank you. You can hopefully appreciate by both the tone of my voice and anybody looking on video that the sun is shining. So that always gives me a great start to the day. So I'm really good enjoying this moment in the year, but also from a work perspective, so much going on, a huge amount going on and and looking forward to sharing some of that during during this session. When I reflect on maybe the last couple of years, I don't think any of us would have wished for a global pandemic, but actually the positive way in which that has been a catalyst for organisations to really focus on well-being has been fantastic. So that means day job is really busy, but busy with, you know, with a, a really good set of reasons behind it. Excellent. Yeah, I love that kind of positive outlook on on everything from the weather to even you know, the pandemic, <laughs> kind of the positives we can we can take from that. Your role, you're the head of diversity, inclusion and well-being at Fujitsu. Maybe could you tell us a little bit about the role and how your career brought you to this position? Yeah, of course. So I I'm proudly responsible for inclusion and well-being. And I know different organizations approach these two topics quite differently. So some have a view that the two things should be very separate. Others like myself and Fujitsu have a view that the two should be very closely aligned. And I'll share the reasons that we have that view. So when I, when I talk about inclusion and, and well-being, I, I really do see these as part of a cycle where being part of an inclusive culture being able to be 
ourselves, in our work and in our lives is a really necessary part of our well-being. And then in turn, where we have positive levels of well-being, that predisposes us to behave in a more inclusive way. So I often talk about the two things like a self-reinforcing cycle. That said, my role is the first time that at Fujitsu, we, we combined the two areas of responsibility together. And it was that that really appealed to me in, in this role, the opportunity to focus on those two really essential parts of our culture. And, and I think it's gone really well in the last couple of years since I've been leading, leading this area. In, in terms of my, my responsibility at Fujitsu, so I, I head up inclusion and wellbeing for Northwestern Europe. We love to carve up the globe, don't we, in big organisations. So what do we mean by Northwestern Europe? Well, that's 12 countries across, across Europe, a really diverse set of countries in terms of the culture, the the ways of working in those countries, but also in terms of the relative size of our organisation in in each of those. So that means that certainly not always a one-size-fits-all approach for inclusion and well-being. It's very much about we have a, a clear, consistent strategy, but then how we deploy that is locally sensitive to culture and employee expectations and priorities on the ground in each in each country. And then very quickly, in terms of my, my career to date, so I started my career as a HR graduate working for BAE Systems. And that was a that was a really good kind of HR induction, if you will, to lots of different HR specialisms, different generalist roles in a what was at the time a really strong kind of employee relations landscape. From there, I then went somewhere completely differently and worked for a small marketing organization for a just for 12 months and I wanted to experience a totally different culture something that was much more fast-paced really different to perhaps the more traditional hierarchical structure that we had at, at BAE but I learned a huge amount from doing that but it certainly was not for me what it taught me was just how important the values and culture of the organization that I'm part of are for me. And the organization that I, that I worked for there, which I won't name, but it, it didn't align how, how the business was led and some of the decisions that were taken did not align with my personal values. And I felt a real inattention throughout the short period of time that I was there. From there, I then moved to Fujitsu and I felt like I had a happy medium really between the kind of more traditional BAE environment that was very paternalistic and the marketing organisations much more fast paced, but the values weren't there. I felt what I got in Fujitsu were the opportunity to be more creative, a little bit more entrepreneurial in a large organisation but an organisation that I could actually buy into its, its values. And I've been at Fujitsu ever since. So I've actually worked for Fujitsu now for 16 years, done lots of different HR generalist roles, and I've progressed up in terms of the organisation during that time. So I started as a HR advisor in the, in the northwest of England and then moved into kind of big change management roles with responsibility for, for Europe and even spent a little bit of time outside of HR, actually, which was a fantastic set of 
insight to bring back into the function. What I've really learned during my career to date, though, is, is what is important to me in a role is having the opportunity to create and influence culture. I think so much of a HR, people transformation, well-being, inclusion role is all around how do we use all of those levers at our disposal to create a culture and an incredibly positive experience for employees as well as good outcomes for our, our organisation. So it's really that interesting culture that led me to this role that I'm in today. And it's a role that I'm very motivated in. And I, I find, as I'm sure many people do, that the sweet spot for me is where I'm doing a job that I really care about. And it also really aligns with my personal values and priorities. And I think that's what I've got in this role. Brilliant. It makes such a difference, doesn't it? And you know, thanks for sharing so much about your journey. I mean, every kind of experience shapes us, doesn't it? And informs us. And Maybe even particularly the, the more challenging experience as well. So I mean, you've clearly learned from that. You've had experience outside of HR, as you touched on, and it's all brought you to, to the role you're in today. Is, is this current role, the, the inclusion and well-being role, was that a brand new role? Did you help to create that or was that already in place when you applied for it? It was a brand new role when I applied for it, bringing together what had previously been led as two separate functions. So previously we had a head of DNI and a head of well-being. A number of organizational changes meant that both of those roles had become vacant at the same time. And if I'm honest, I think part of the reason was probably a bit tactical at the time. We've got two two senior vacancies that need filling. How can we mash them together? But it was the fact that they were mashed together that really appealed to me to want to want to apply for it. So yeah, a really a, a great outcome from perhaps something that may not have been intentional at the time. <laughs> and then you spoke about all you know the overlap, the clear overlap between well-being and inclusion. Could you describe a day, a typical day, a typical week? Is it kind of very clearly distinct? You're doing a well-being project or an inclusion project, or or is it really does that overlap even kind of? Is that in your week, in your day and in your week? I'm sure most people would say this. Every day, every week is completely different. So I certainly do not segment up my week and say Monday to Wednesday, it's well-being, Thursday, Friday, it's it's inclusion. I'm constantly interchanging between both and also doing a number of things that completely address both priorities. So if I think about some of the things that I'm going to be doing later today are focusing on how we continue to upskill our line management population, both in terms of inclusive leadership, inclusive hiring practices, but also how we help them to embed well-being into job design. So that's just a little example of how much, you know, there's a huge amount of overlap in the practical things that I'm working on where we're addressing both priorities. And there are naturally moments in the year, I guess, where the focus on one tips a little bit more compared to the other. And if I think about for example, the really early days of the pandemic, you know, all focus on well-being. But actually, by all of the focus on well-being, we inadvertently 
we're also addressing a number, a huge number of inclusion priorities. So little example, how are we going to support the well-being of our colleagues now that the vast majority of people where they can work at home are doing so and where they've got caring responsibilities, they've also now got those in the home. Well-being, absolute priority. Keeping people productive, absolute priority. We're going to give people carers leave. That's a huge inclusion activity. So there's, yeah, there's so much interconnection between the two. The, the other thing is that we're, I'm very mindful where we are doing activities specifically to support the well-being of our workforce, that we also recognise the diversity of needs and expectations in that. So a little, another little example of that might be where we want to have at Fujitsu an open mental health culture. We get our leaders talking openly about their mental health. We encourage our employees in their check-ins with our line managers to talk about their, their mental health. And we train our managers in spotting what are those, what are those red flags? What are those moments or changes in people's behavior patterns that you, you should watch out for? Especially when you're working remotely and you can't gain quite as much from a, a connection with somebody when you're just seeing them through a screen rather than in person. But in the context of mental health, we do different things for different groups of people. So one thing that we found is that our male colleagues especially have, are perhaps more likely to have long-term periods of absence in relation to mental health and yet engage less with the mental health support services that we offer. So we, we tried to understand, well, what is that? We took a little bit of advice and we introduced an app based approach for men to be able to connect with our employee assistance program or for anybody but what we found was that for men especially their engagement rose when they weren't having to pick up a phone we made it as easy as possible and the other thing that we do is we do you know with with our um male colleagues we're getting some really good roundtable conversations happening now specifically about men's mental health these are conversations that are led by men for men and and we're finding the conversations quite different so understanding those diverse, the diverse context that we're coming from and then recognising diversity in our well-being approach. Brilliant. Yeah, some really interesting insights there. The absences you mentioned and then the fact that men are less likely to engage, you discover that in the Fujitsu population. Can I ask, how, how are you measuring that? How are you gathering those insights? Is that kind of a formal metric that you're tracking or is, is it kind of survey based? We have a number of different well-being indicators. So for that specific example, we have a an employee assistance program and we we use the data that they provide us on a on a quarterly basis to understand engagement, engagement with the services, which services people are engaging with. It's all completely anonymous and for obvious reasons. So it's totally confidential when somebody is accessing that service. But we can see just, well, what are the themes? What are the areas of support that people are accessing? And how is that broken down by gender and by age range? And that gives us one, one piece of important insight. We, we've recently set up a, a wellbeing dashboard because for me, measures are such an important part of really getting to the nub of the of the challenge and also really understanding are the things that we're doing making a difference so the other some of the other measures that we have within our well-being dashboard are absence reasons for absence and that broken down by diverse group where we have it and diverse group is an interesting question because we we 
are able to gather different demographic information for people, depending on which country we're in. So, for example, in, in England, we ask people a whole set of demographic information. In some countries, we simply would not be legally permitted to do that. So wherever we have diversity information, we break down absence data by that as well, because it helps us to start to spot patterns. And then we also couple that data with insights. So we get really great insight from our employees through twice yearly engagement surveys. We ask people to tell us specifically about their their well-being, to what extent is is their work at Fujitsu contributing to or hindering their well-being, and what should we be focusing on to better their well-being. We also get feedback for each of our people managers as well. So our managers have a, a 180 feedback loop from their team where through a through regular surveys which we call the Fujitsu Management Accreditation Program people are are rating their manager against a whole set of criteria one of which is is well-being so we can use that as a barometer as well to understand well where where are are there parts of the business that need need more focus that need more support and that's not about you know, coming to line managers with a big stick and saying you're getting this wrong but actually let's let's just understand are there some areas that we're we, we need to we need to put a bit more of a support wrapper around. Excellent, yeah. And then the people manager, the line manager element is so important, isn't it? And our, our mutual friend Sir Carry Cooper talks about that quite often. The importance of kind of empowering and educating and supporting our our line managers. Is this related to any kind anyway business commitments or end of year commitments? Is there a well being metric that line managers, people managers are working towards? Is that part of their end of year review, or is this just something that their I guess their colleagues are feeding back on so it doesn't form part of their end of year review and in fact we don't we don't really have a performance cycle that focuses only on end of year reviews so we've actually evolved our approach to performance management other than for, I guess there's some roles that will always have financial year targets to to achieve for many of our line management community they don't have those you know, kind of specific revenue targets, etc., for the, the year. But so beyond that, what we do is we have a quarterly cycle of performance check-in conversations. And through that, with our people managers, we're looking at well, what's the impact you're having on your customers, your financial deliverables, what's the impact that you're having on your team, and what are your deliverables in all of those respects over this next quarter and in addition to that what development support do you need for it now that approach was something we we consciously changed about 18 months ago now because we wanted to get really outcome focused especially aligned with the shift in how we work and it's less less relevant in many roles now whether you're online between nine and six and you're contactable you know, every moment of the day between those times, actually, if we're clear on the outcomes that our people are working towards, that's the critical thing. And that that gives individuals so much more autonomy in terms of how they how they do their their work. So that was a bit of a long answer to your question, because I set I set the context there. So so how your people are perceiving you and experiencing your management style is part of that review process. It doesn't form a specific target if you will that is that is reviewed end of year i like to hear that mixing up the the end of year review kind of thing that's one thing i i 
I don't miss from the from the corporate world from my time there. That was kind of end of year. It was maybe once once a year of a meeting with your line manager. It was just it seemed so kind of it just wasn't right. It just there was there was so many holes in it. So I, I like the idea of those quarterly performance check ins that you mentioned there. T- tell me about the so twelve countries effectively you're responsible for as you mentioned the different jurisdictions the different challenges you spoke about I mean I'm thinking just out loud here in Ireland we have we have a code of practice on the right to disconnect I, I don't believe that's in in the UK as yet the, I know France it's officially it's a fully it's a fully fledged law there. I'm just thinking like just just as simple as one, there's one kind of, if you like, area where you probably have to manage multiple different laws and their different jurisdictions. How how do you find that? Do you have a team kind of locally that will support you in each in each area? Is, is that how it works? It, that's exactly how it works. Yeah. So we have we set our strategy at a regional level. And then within each country, we have a person who is based within that country with responsibility for inclusion or well-being or both often. So depending on the size of the country, that might not be a full-time role for the individual. They might carry these responsibilities as well as some some others. But what that really does is exactly the example that you referenced there is brings that specific local context to bear of, well, if, if I think about our well-being strategy, one of our themes is sustaining well-being in a hybrid world. The guardrails that, that go around that are going to be driven a little bit by what are they what are those kind of code of practices locally in in different countries also though what we do find is that we're taking inspiration where where there is that more formal guidance in place in a number of countries now how can we use that to benefit our countries where we don't have it because regardless of which country you're based in at Fujitsu, what we do still absolutely want is everybody to be having an incredibly positive experience and be working in a way that enables them to thrive. So there's some really great stuff, in my view, that comes out of those guidelines that even though they're not a mandatory requirement, I mean, I think the island one isn't a mandatory requirement, is it an optional? We haven't gone full legislation, but there's a code of practice. So the onus... The onus is on the employer employer to, to do something, but they're not legally obliged. But an employee could take a case to the Workplace Relations Commission if they're not, you know, adhering to the code of practice, if you like. So we're, we're, it's 18 months in place. So I think we're waiting on a case or two to really see how things settle down. But there is a, a part of the code of practice. There is a template for organizations to adopt a policy template document. But it, it's interesting to see how some companies approach that, actually. Some have the, the company-wide approach with a policy. Others, maybe at a team level, will work on a charter together. And because maybe they deal with the US or Asian markets, for example, and you know, nine to five kind of doesn't really work then for that team. Or And some I've even seen at an individual level, they might have like a how I like to work document and they might sign you know agree that with their with their line manager and that's kind of their personal agreement and they might share that with their teammates then as well so i love that kind of that mixed approach that you know one size doesn't fit all but that the organization or the team themselves will will work around what works best for them 
Yeah, that's that's exactly it. Because we're such a different organisation. So we we have gone so far in Belgium, for example, to include right to disconnect in 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 colleagues' contracts. We've not got that in in other countries. But we, as I say, even where we don't have that uh, code of practice or even the legal obligation, we're still learning from or what what great examples can we take? So Belgium is a good one. What what our colleagues in Belgium introduced about 18 months ago was something they call focus time, which is a block of time, um, a four-hour block of time every week. And it's automatically booked into each person in Fujitsu Belgium's calendar. And what that does is it gives people protected time that's time that everybody signed up to where you're not going to be messaging on Teams. You're not expected to attend meetings other than where there are customer deliverables, which obviously will, will, state, will still take priority. Um, but that has gone down brilliantly. And what we're just in the, in the process of doing is looking at extending that right across the region because the feedback from Belgium has been incredibly positive. It's not detrimentally impacted productivity at all, but what it does is responds to one of those things that people are telling us they're really struggling with in more remote working is I spend so much of my time on virtual calls. I don't get time to actually just sit down quietly and do the work. That's what focus time is is for. Is it the same block of time across the organization for everyone? So is it like a Friday morning or something like that? It is. For Belgium, it is a Friday morning, Ah. in fact. What we're looking at is doing the same across the region. And that might be a bit tricky because we're obviously dealing with slightly different time zones. Not massively different. I think two hours is the biggest gap between some of our our timings. But we've debated logistically it it will be much easier if we just set one common time for for the region. Yeah. You know, it sounds to me a bit like Cal Newport's approach, deep work. I I try and and bring that into my own working day where possible. Morning time is kind of deeper focus time. Afternoon is kind of the reactive stuff, emails and phone calls and stuff like that. Doesn't really work like, doesn't always work like that. Rarely actually it works like that, but I, I do have great intentions in that area. But I think if you have a, an overall kind of policy or at least an, an approach at it, like the focus time, I think it's a great idea. I know some organizations might have a no meeting Friday or certainly no meetings Friday afternoon. Or, or my, my favorite actually is no meetings Friday afternoon, no meetings Monday morning. I remember I used to, an old organization I used to work with. We had this huge kind of get together on a Monday morning. It was like a catch up for the week. It was a two hour and you kind of needed to have your your updates from the previous week there at that meeting. So it just it bled into the weekend. You were making sure you had your updates ready for Monday morning at 9 a.m. It was just it was so tough. So I love that Monday morning, a couple of hours break and maybe the Friday afternoon was the, kind of the focus time that seemed to work well. Uh, in some organizations I've worked with. Yeah. So there's some, some ideas for you there. <laughs> That's really good. Thank you. And there's loads that technology can do for us in this space as well. So we're using Viva and Microsoft Teams at the moment, which also helps you to deliberately plan some of those things into your working day. It'll look for free moments in your calendar and block those out for focus time and, and give you that roundup of what you've got for the day ahead as well which are really little simple things but I'm I'm a massive fan of those those little nudges actually sometimes those tiny tiny little things can be some of the most impactful in terms of supporting our our well-being 
they, they can indeed. I love that idea, the positive nudge, the kind of nudge theory. And I think you mentioned you mentioned focus time in the, the, the recent Financial Times article that you quoted in. And the other thing there was kind of the default for your team's meetings is set to 20. If it's a half an hour, well, a half an hour meeting, it's set to 25 minutes. And then if it's a standard hour meeting, it's actually only 45 minutes, if I'm not mistaken. So in other words, people have time, a short break between their meetings. So they're not literally jumping from, from online meeting to online meeting. Just have a short period of time in between where they can take a little bit of a pause and maybe stretch their legs. Yeah, totally. And I think what, we, what we've done is for, for so many people working the majority of their time from home was not the norm until COVID happened and forced us to do that. And and so what we did is we took our ways of working from the office and applied those to a home environment and probably put more pressure on ourselves to be more visible at the outset because it's a huge situation of uncertainty and our instinctive responses, everybody lean in and be visible and over over communicate. And it almost feels to me like now as as individuals, but also as organisations, we've got to take a step back and relearn a different way of, of, of getting the most out of ourselves and our and our working days. So that that little example there was is such a small thing again, but it was it was just to recognize that actually if you are in a meeting in an hour, you know, in an office for an hour, you probably have those few minutes chat at the start. People might go and get a coffee and bring it back. You have you give yourself time to move from one meeting room to the next. When you're just sat in your home office or wherever wherever you're working for a day, you don't. So we've got to deliberately design that time in for ourselves. And over time, we'll just develop these whole new set of habits that work better for us in this different way of working. And speaking of the different way of working, hopefully the, the, the worst of the pandemic is behind us. We're all looking to move back in some shape or form to workplaces how, how are you finding that now? And what's what's kind of the planning like at Fujitsu? And, and maybe how do you see the future, the future of work? Is, is it, you know, is it a hybrid model or, or what, what's going on? Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, well, I, well, first of all, I would say I think it's hugely exciting time to be I agree, yeah. working in the people space and in, in inclusion and in well-being and organizational culture, because we are at a real moment of shift. But significant shift in, in terms of what people expect from work, what we want work to deliver for us, and how that work is con- is configured. And we we wanted to really early on engage our people at Fujitsu in designing well what will our approach to future ways of working be. And it, it was back in, it seems such a long time ago now, back in September 2020, we went out and, and asked employees. We were clearly too optimistic, weren't we, thinking about when the when the pandemic was going to be over. But we asked employees to tell us how do you want to work differently in the future? What do you want to see carried forward from how we've changed our ways of working over this past six months due to COVID? What do you want to change? Where do you want to spend your working time? And also, let's think about flexibility as much more than where we spend our time. It's also when when we work. And we got some really compelling feedback. So from, from that survey, and that was right across Europe, and then a number of our other regions across Fujitsu globally did the same. But across Europe, 85% of people said, I want to spend more of my time working remotely. And the primary reasons around that are, I waste less time 
traveling, I feel I can be just as productive and I benefit from better work-life integration. Since that time, we put in place our work your way commitment. So that is our, our version of hybrid, if you will. And what we say in that is we empower our people and their line managers to agree what is the right pattern of work, location and hours for you based on the job you do and your individual preferences. The job you do is an important part of that because we do work, we're a service delivery organization. We have customers and we therefore need to be available for our customers. And some of the roles that, that our colleagues do, do require an on-site presence. So we're, we're very, very mindful of that, that customer delivery does mean there will be less flexibility for some roles. But actually for those roles, often we find they carry more flexibility in terms of potential working hours. And so that's our, that basically that work your way is our commitment. And, and in doing that, our strategy focuses on a number of things. So it focuses on how we help our managers and their, and their teams to continue to develop effective hybrid working behaviours. So we, we are intentional about when we're coming together in person and how we're going to get value from coming together in person. Our property strategy is all about how do we make sure our physical spaces have a different feel to them. So in effect, the, the office has become a bit more like the new offsite and you go to the office to connect, to create, to collaborate, to you know build those in-person relationships. You don't go to the office to sit in front of your laptop quietly on calls all day you could just you could do that from anywhere so we have we have what we call the six c's the six reasons that people would go into the office and they are all around kind of customer connection coaching creativity collaboration and choice and choice is an important one when we think of well-being so although the majority of people wanted to work remotely more of their time some people want that office environment they want a structured environment equally some people may not have the facilities to work remotely they may be in in a flat share they may not have optimum circumstances for having a home office dedicated at home so there will there'll always be an office space if people prefer to work in in that and then the other theme of our of our strategies around well-being and technology so how do we deliberately create those behavioral nudges to reinforce a positive way of working in a in a hybrid world and with technology how do we make sure that we're using tech to best effect so that we're still able to connect we can still develop great relationships we can still host really really productive hybrid meetings we're still learning in that space I would say many many organizations are but how does technology reinforce and support this hybrid approach. So it's, I think it's hugely exciting time for, for work. And I think the very competitive talent market at the moment is really forcing this open-mindedness, creativity from organizations. And I love some of the things that we're, we're seeing in terms of, you know, the pilot for the four-day week. I think there's 70, 70 to 100 organizations in the UK currently signed up to be part of that pilot. But all sorts of creative thinking coming out from organizations because employees have 
have spoken you know people are choosing to reassess their their lives what they want out of their work lives how they can integrate their work and their life and and that's yeah I think presents a wonderful opportunity to to think how do we create a really compelling offering for employees brilliant yeah some fantastic detail and so much thought gone into your strategy there clearly and I, I agree with you 100%. I think it's just such an exciting time and there's just great opportunities now for organizations to get this right, to really support their colleagues. You've touched on it there, I guess, you know, the collaboration, the engagement, the connection piece. How, how do you find it? You've, you've, so people have choice, but also you're being intentional about the, the integration and the collaboration and the engagement how do you, is there just a happy medium? You have to try and find a kind of a balance to kind of bringing people together certain days of the week, potentially, or certain teams, depending on how it works. And then maybe how does the well-being element, how do you think that will, what will the future of, of well-being look like then in this, this kind of hybrid model when some people are at home, some people are at a hub and some people are at HQ? Okay, wow, there's a lot in there, isn't there? So, <laughs> so thinking first of all about how we're encouraging people to be intentional in where they spend, in where they spend their time. We're we're very much putting that at a team level. So each team has its own specific set of deliverables, specific needs in terms of co-working and coaching and the type of output that they're they're producing so we encourage our managers to agree with their teams and then each employee within the team well what what's going to work for us so if we think about the output that we're delivering when are we creating when is it that we need to collaborate and actually we can get much more out of our time together if we do that in person but also it is really important we feel connected as a group so we're gonna have we're gonna come together. We're still gonna come together because we want the strength of those relationships that we can build internally. So managers are agreeing with their teams. Well, what's our what's our version of hybrid, if you will? So I'll talk about my team. You know, we've we've said, well, we'll get together every quarter in person. We have check-ins on an individual basis, team basis every week. Those are those are virtual, but that quarterly connection is really important. When we're kicking off a new project we tend to do that in person because actually some of that scoping, that free thinking was stood up and maybe I'm a bit traditional now, stood up in front of a whiteboard and it's easy to move around the room. You know, so some of those things we do, we do in person as well. But it's it's really about the manager and their teams agreeing. Now, you're, you're right about that point of being intentional, though, because what we found initially was a little bit of reluctance for people to go back, that we've developed such new habits of remote working and we've all got responsibilities outside of work often working remotely really helps us to to manage those and I'm, I'm the first one to acknowledge that with two little kids um you know it's hugely helpful not to have to everybody rushing out of the door at 7 30 and then we realize we've forgotten everything so we've we've developed those new habits and actually I think there's a bit of anxiety at first about well this is going to be disruptive to my new life patterns but what we're finding is gradually as people start to step back in they remember the benefit and just how energizing it is to be back together and we're putting deliberate things in place so we've been doing in-person 
roadshows, get-togethers, roundtables with our leadership team, putting breakfast alongside that and making sure that in the experience that people have, it really is bringing that social connection out as that little reminder. And then once you've been in once, it's it's easier. So it's been a little bit of a journey, I would say, since uh, since the start of this year to really kind of encourage people people back in. But we're seeing now more more dynamism, I think it's fair to say, in terms of people's willingness to, to spend time back in offices. Other than where there is a, a, a legal requirement, we haven't deliberately set a number of days for people and in some of our countries we've consulted and people said actually we want that we want we want to know well what's the minimum expectation and so we've got that at a local level but across the region we haven't specifically said you've got to be in two days a week and it's these two days because we do recognize that there's just such a variety of work that people do that actually practically if everybody did go in on a Tuesday and a Wednesday we might not have the space for them but also that might not be the optimum days for individuals in that team. Excellent yeah and you, you've touched on it a few times there and I've had the, the pleasure of going into a few workplaces over the last number of weeks and it sounds a little bit similar to yourselves. The, the organizations have clearly put effort into making these workplaces as attractive as possible, be it just you know mixing up the space, kind of more comfortable spaces, collaborative spaces. Maybe there's the, the breakfast and lunch has been included. Maybe there's some sessions on that they can attend. But just really making the the workplace an attractive and a nice place to hang out in. And so that seems to be kind of a, a really nice approach. And it's you know the places that I've been to anyway. I who wouldn't want to spend time in them? They're just lovely places to hang out. So I think I think you're right. That's kind of the future, isn't it? It'll make the workplace that kind of more attractive, social, collaborative space. So I think that's definitely something we're going to see an awful lot more of. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, we spoke. We touched on Sir Carrie Cooper. We we virtually met at Carrie's the UK National Forum for Health and Wellbeing. You've been involved in that for quite some time. Have you seen any interesting projects or have you been involved in any interesting projects as a result of that? Yeah, sure. And there's an interesting story with Kerry, actually. So Kerry was one of my lecturers when I was at university in in Manchester. I distinctly remember him because at the time I was doing a management degree, but specialising in accounting and finance. And I remember going to one of my first lectures during my first year there and Kerry was talking about organisational psychology. And I loved it. I thought this is so much more interesting than the numbers side of of an organisation. And as a result of that, plus some of the other people related topics that I studied in the first year, I ended up dropping the specialism in accounting and finance and ultimately pursuing a, a career in HR. Um, now I remember Kerry. I, he doesn't. He, he's very polite, but I don't think he remembers me from that from that time amongst a sea of hundreds of undergraduates. Uh, but yeah, I got involved with the National Forum for Health and Wellbeing when I started this role. So over over two and a half years ago, what it does is it brings together wellbeing and organisational leaders from all sectors of the UK. So we've got a really diverse mix of people with responsibility for public, 
private sector, within the third sector, that the principle of the of the network is all around collaboration and bringing together people with similar priorities in different contexts. There's no competition and Kerry intentionally tries to ensure that there's no direct competitors in the group. So it's not, you know, I think we would all be grown up enough not to let that creep in anyway, but it's all very much about how can we support each other? What can we learn from each other to advance the well-being of employees in our respective organizations, but also to enhance our understanding of workplace well-being externally. So some of the things that I've been involved in since since joining the, the forum, I think one of the things that I'm most proud of is that we did a huge amount of sharing during COVID, different organizations talking about in the immediacy of a crisis, which it certainly was in, at, that, at the early days, how are we how are we fronting up how are we looking after our people what can we learn from each other and a number of us contributed to a book that was published by Carey at the start of this year called I check it because I've got it on my desk managing workplace health and well-being during a crisis and the purpose of that book is is really just to help in future situations because we would have loved the rule book at that time but sadly such rule book didn't exist well what we've done in in that book is a number of us have shared our stories of how did we deliberately look after our people and because there's different sector examples, I think there would be little case studies in there that relate, that resonate with people from all sorts of different organisations. The second one that I'm really interested in at the, at the moment that the forum is, is leading on um, and is actually going to be publishing a set of output on next week is how do we measure well-being? And you, you touched on that at the start, Brian. For me, measures... Measures and stories are the way we get an insight to how people feel in our organization. Stories are easy. <laughs> you know, we simply create the forum for people to have conversation. But actually, well-being is a measure. I think historically we may have looked at absence. Absence data we look at, it's part of it, but well-being is not the absence of ill health. <laughs> and so absence gives us a tiny little bit of the jigsaw. And what the forum has been working on over the past few months is a guide to how do we measure workplace well-being through the lens of if you're a if you're a board director, if you're a senior leader, if you're a non-exec director and you really want to understand how is this organization doing in terms of the well-being of its workforce? Here's a set of indicators that you, you, you should consider looking at. So that's going to be that's been led by a couple of colleagues, one of whom is the head of well-being for BP. And we're, we're having an event um, very soon where they'll promote that guide. And I think I've, that so, I've signed up to it. I've signed resource. up to it. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, I will. Well, see you virtually. See you there. virtually. <laughs> You're right. I love, I love that. So the measures and stories, and that just reminds me, I'm sure you've heard this. Adam Grant speaks about, he calls it hard data plus human stories. And that's how you bring people with you when it comes to well-being. So I love that just echoes that. So yeah, I'm looking forward to the launch and the event and to seeing exactly what the, the forum comes up with, because I'm sure it'll be you know, it'll be absolute best practice. There's there's no doubt about that. So really looking forward to that. You've been so generous with your time. Final question, Kelly. 
you're clearly you've clearly got a lot on. How how are, are you managing to, to dedicate time to your own well being at the moment? <laughs> it's a good question, yeah. but I, I absolutely do. I think it's essential. Why is it essential? I want to have a long life. And so I do selfishly, some might say, as a mum of two children who are three and seven, but I do carve out time for me every day. Sometimes that is the detriment of sleep. So I'm normally up by 5.30 in the swimming pool for six o'clock and swim every morning, six till seven. And that is my time. And that absolutely sets me, sets me up for the day. Um, it's, it's, you know, great benefit in terms of physical activity, but for me, it's the headspace that it gives me. It helps me to get my day in order before anybody else asks anything of me. So that is such an important pillar in terms of my personal well-being. And then I do, I do try and practice what I preach. So in the in the work setting, I talk often about you don't always need to be in front of a screen. Get out and go for a walk and take your phone with you if you're on a call. So maybe sometimes my team um, get a little bit frustrated with me that they'll say, oh, you're out for a walk, aren't you? They can hear dogs barking or children leaving school. But actually just try and build a bit of activity into, into my working day. Um, and then the thing that I, I do have to work hard on, and I have a good coach for this at home in the form of my partner, is, is to try and switch off. I think sometimes having young children can really help that, actually, because you've got to be in the moment, especially with a three-year-old. You can't be thinking about, <laughs> about other things because they notice immediately that you are not concentrating on the, the tasks that you're, you're doing together. But my other half always says to me, the work is never done. And that that does ring really true. That I, I'm very much the sort of person that always thinks, oh, I'll just do this, I'll just do that, I'll just do that. And I really try to use that. This is my New Year's resolution this year. I'm really trying to use that to think the work will never be done. So even if I work until 10 o'clock tonight, I'll still have a long list of stuff to do tomorrow morning. So just keep yeah, always keep that in mind as well. It's like I'm talking to a mirror image there. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing selfish about your 5.30 starts and those swims. I mean, that sounds like that's going to set you up for the day, even you know, health-wise, mood-wise, you're going to be ready to, to look after the kids, to get your work done. And I love to hear that, you know, you're kind of leading by example in the workplace then as well, with your walking meetings, which are switching off. And as a senior leader yourself, then it's clear that then that behavior is being rewarded, you know, at Fujitsu, because I think that's the real difference. We can talk about legislation and the right to disconnect all we want, but if, you know, if someone is being rewarded above, you know, someone, let's say someone who's, work, you know, a workaholic and doing great work, but they're working seriously long hours, not taking a break, whereas someone who's doing equally good work, but maybe switches off at 5.30, you know, we need to see those kind of people being rewarded for that in, in workplaces. And it sounds like it's clearly that kind of culture is, is definitely present at Fujitsu. It is for sure. Kelly, listen, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Great chat today. Where can people go to find out more about you and your work? I would recommend LinkedIn. So connect with me on LinkedIn. And I quite often publish little bits of insight on there as well. Brilliant. And we'll include that link in the show notes. Great. Thanks, Brian. Kelly, thanks so much for your time. Really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Great, great to chat to you. And that's a wrap for this week. 
Go to workwellpodcast.com if you'd like to access the show notes for this episode. Quick favor to ask. Can you head over to iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review for the WorkWell podcast? It would be a huge help, so thank you. If you want to dive deeper in the area of workplace health promotion, if you want to educate yourself in this area, then make sure to check out the WorkWell Institute. It's our online learning hub. It's a one-stop shop for all your workplace well-being training needs. You'll find all the details at workwellinstitute.org. By the way, the original music that you're hearing right now was composed by my good friend, Greg Clifford. Check him out at gregcliffordmusic.com. Thanks for listening right to the end. Remember to work well, stay safe, and I'll see you on the next episode.